brought to you by Kusha's Bar and Grill. One of my favorite places here locally. I hope you will frequent that establishment. Visit our friend Kush over there. Anyway, we're in Revelation chapter 11. And one of the things that's going to happen this morning is I'm going to post a resource or a resource is going to be posted, should be some, sometime during this devotional or right after. Um, it's to a series of lectures on the book of Revelation by Don Carson. And Don Carson um, taught at Trinity Seminary for many, many years. He's probably, I'm going to go out on a limb, not, this really isn't a limb to say he's the most respected New Testament scholar, theologian in the world, uh, living at least. Um, anyway, he's written voluminously, and this is a, the, what you're being linked to is a series of lectures through the book of Revelation. And I thought this was important because a lot of the information that we're getting to now in Revelation and, and 11 is detailed. Um, it's, it's full of information, numbers, symbols, um, we're going to slow it down during this section of the book of Revelation because there's so much meat. There's so much richness here, theological richness. And it's going to maybe raise some particular questions for you that um, we just don't have time in our brief segment each morning to delve into um, in super great detail. But if you link up with those lectures they're outstanding and he's french canadian just keep that in mind which makes it all the more interesting okay let me pray for us and then we're going to dive into revelation chapter 11. lord jesus we want to be renewed by your word this morning we want to be renewed by you through your word we want to be surprised by your word and so lord make these strange texts come alive to us in a way that they would have for the original readers as they heard them um, read aloud for the first time. And Lord, do the same for us. And we ask that you would bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're now between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, as John is telling and retelling the story of redemption. And here he's going to direct our attention to the two witnesses. And so let me read actually the first three verses um, because we're going to comment on those pretty specifically and then sort of work our way through the text. So verse 1 of chapter 11, Then I, and this is John speaking, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, if you heard yesterday's devotional, you'll, you've kind of heard my theological discourse and reasoning behind why I think we are to interpret this language spiritually and symbolically so i'm not going to rehash those arguments but one of the things that um, we have to be reminded of is that in the old testament the presence of god was located in a place um, and that was primarily the temple of course and people would go up to jerusalem to worship god to offer sacrifices in the temple 
But what we see in the New Testament over and over again is that the presence of God has, has, is no longer symbolized by being in a place, but instead in a person. And of course, that person is Jesus Christ. And we see this in the woman at the well story in John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking about the nature of true spiritual biblical worship, when she says, you Jews think you should go to Jerusalem, we think we should be here in Samaria. Uh, and then Jesus says, but I tell you, woman, okay, um, basically, it's not about place anymore. It's about worshiping in spirit and truth. It's about worshiping a person. So now we believe the presence of God um, is found in Jesus Christ. But how does Jesus Christ manifest himself to us, give himself to us? Well, it's through his spirit. And now through his spirit, we also are incorporated into the temple of God, metaphorically, um, the presence of God. Now, it's abundantly clear all throughout the New Testament that this imagery of the temple is no longer found in a particular place, but it's found in the person and in the presence and in the people of God. And let me just read a couple of, of passages for you, and you'll be familiar with them probably. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple, the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Okay, so he's equating God's presence, his spirit, and the temple with us. Ephesians 2, 18 through 19. And of course, you are more than welcome to play Bible drill here with me this morning as we read some of these passages. But Ephesians 2, 18 through 19, listen to what Paul says. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then obviously, one final passage that I'll reference, although there are, are many others. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Um, so put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, by it you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Listen, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So again, these are all, this is the most common uh, reference where in the Old Testament, temple referred to place. Now it refers to Jesus and the people of God. Which all leads us to say that when John is talking here in Revelation 11 about the temple, I think he's, he's referring to the church. He's referring to the people of God. This is further emphasized in Hebrews 10.4, remember, where the writer tells us that the blood of bulls and goats no longer take away sin. So I think to visualize this as a future rebuilt temple in Jerusalem where literal sacrifices are being offered is not, is not in view here. I think that we have the weight of the New Testament to, to 
to support this. Now, when it says, what does it mean when it says John was giving a measuring rod and told to rise up and measure the temple of God? He's, this is based upon the imagery of Ezekiel 40 through 48, where John is a sense being given the capacity or the ability or the task of taking a measure of the people of God or giving an account or numbering the people. In other words, God is willing to communicate to John, I know exactly who my people are. I, I, I've accounted for them. They are living stones. They are built into the structure uh, of, of a, as a spiritual house with Jesus Christ as a cornerstone. And, and that's what I'm doing in this life. This is what I'm doing between the first and second comings of Christ. I'm gathering my people. I know them. They're mine. They're my sheep. Now, when he says, do not measure the outside court of the temple, leave that out. It is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city. This is drawing on the imagery that in Second Temple Judaism, there were actually four parts to the temple structure. There, were, there was the part where only the priests could go. This, these were like concentric circles and the only part where the men of Israel could go. And then another part where only where, where women could go. And then finally, the outer court of the Gentiles. But it was all considered part of the temple complex. And when, when John here says that this outer court, um, which is part of the temple, is being given over to the Gentiles to be trampled, I think he's really uh, pointing us to, and I think the rest of the chapter 11 points to this as well, that, that, that John is now addressing the persecuted church. Right, he he's telling us that that God is gathering His people um, into His holy presence, into His living temple, but yet part of that temple, okay, in this life is going to be trampled over. Uh, this means a portion of the church is going to be martyred, is going to be delivered up, is going to be persecuted. That and that this portion of the church is not total. Okay, that's why the whole temple has not been given over to be trampled but only a, a portion of it, okay? And, and this, this notion of given over for, look at verse 2, 42 months. Now, there's tomes, volumes of ink spilled in commentaries about what these days mean. I don't think they're literal days, okay? I think they're, they're symbolic of a designated period of time. And one of the things that we have to, to, to grapple with is how would the John's original readers have understood this idea that, that the people of God were, a portion of them were being given over to martyrdom or persecution for 1260 days. Um, well, think about this. If you think about someone visiting our country who's not familiar with our history, um, um, they, and if you were to, 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 to quote for them, for example, uh, four score and seven years ago. Like now as Americans, we should know immediately that that's Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Or uh, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice to assure domestic tranquility, we know as Americans that comes from the Declaration of, of Independence, okay? But for someone visiting or someone who is not familiar with American history, they wouldn't know what that's referring to. Well, I believe, and, and Carson I think points this out, that these, I think there's probably two likely options, and I'll tell you which one I think is most likely, that they would have thought about with these 42 months, okay? So one, they may have identified this with the ministry of Elijah, because the ministry of Elijah was indeed three and a half years. And you can see that a pattern 
of what these witnesses are doing. And by the way, the witnesses are the witnesses of the church. Okay. Um, the, 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 it's not a singular person. These two witnesses, I think they are, it's symbolic and it's playing off the, the, the word of Deuteronomy where, um, truth is established by the testimony of two witnesses. And so it, it's meant to communicate that the church in this age is carrying forth the witness of the gospel, the witness of Jesus Christ, and that a portion of the church is going to be giving up its life and its livelihood for the sake of this gospel. But this is going to be for a time-limited uh, period. So they may that may have been reflective of Elijah's, okay, three and a half years, okay, but I think more likely, and Carson says this, this probably points to that point in the history of the Israelites, what had happened just relatively historically recently prior to this of the Maccabean revolt. So again, not to get into all this, but um, Israel found itself in the middle of a war zone as the sons of Alexander the Great fought over various territory. Well, the Maccabean revolt is when uh, the Jews revolted, okay, against the rule of Antiochus, um, I think it was, and, um, and, and the period where Antiochus ruled over Jerusalem um, with an iron hand and, like, offered up uh, sacrificed goats, I mean, sacrificed pigs on the altar and desecrated the temple, that was a period that lasted three and a half years. And it was an intense season of persecution for the people of Israel. Now, this was in the intertestamental period. But it was limited. And, and after the Maccabean Revolt, the Jews gained a measure of independence before finally being conquered by the Romans. And so what is John trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that while the persecution that the church faces in this age is intense, it requires the giving of life in certain circumstances, but but make no mistake, it will be limited, okay? Meaning it will not go on forever. Um, there will be a time when Jesus will return and he will vindicate his church. Um, that, that even as these witnesses, okay, are demonstrating gospel power, as we see um, in this section of chapter 11, um, there will, be a, there will be a season. There will be some who will be martyred, who will be given up for the faith. But again, they will be vindicated. They will rise again from the dead. And it, was, and it will be at that time that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so here, what we see in verses 4 through 13 is a recounting of this, where it talks about the fact that um, these witnesses or the church's witness will be, um, will be as, as the church is persecuted, they will be gloated over. And we have to remember that any time... Um, our gospel witness takes us into the world and we are telling people that um, they need to be saved, okay? That they're sinful, that they need to trust in a savior. That's always gonna be offensive. That's always going to elicit um, a oftentimes violent response. We see this in John the Baptist, do we not? Where John comes proclaiming the kingdom, um, but he gets sideways with Herod, okay? Because um, he tells Herod that he is committing sexual immorality with this woman he's having an affair with. And that's offensive. And it cost John the Baptist his head. And what happens at this huge party where John the Baptist's head is brought into a platter? They're laughing. They're gloating. They're, 
their their snickering and that's and that's what's being described here okay in these verses that as a portion of the church is martyred okay they are um they are they are being taunted they are being made fun of they are being made a public display but then it tells us that after a time the breath of life verse 11 of god enters them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them in other words there will be a time in the future where the church will be vindicated um, and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord and that will happen on that final day and in the meantime we stay diligent we persevere we pursue obedience and i think that's the essence of what chapter uh, 11 verses 1 through 14 is about so tomorrow we'll look specifically at what happens at the seventh trumpet okay and again if you have questions reference yesterday's devotional go to don carson's um, lecture series go to your scotty smith unveiled hope book all these should be helps for you and but remember the main point here is the church will win through jesus christ that god has measured out his people he knows his people he's gathering his people and that while um, this side of heaven sometimes um, his people will give up their life and they will be persecuted uh, and they will lose their life and they will lose their way of life um, ultimately the church will be vindicated when jesus returns which he most certainly will all right let's pray lord give us grace now to walk in humility before a watching world uh, knowing that our witness will oftentimes elicit pushback violent response and that we want to be faithful and persevere through that knowing that while all may not be made right right now it will one day jesus when you come back and you judge the living and the dead and you raise your people to new life with you lord we look forward expectantly to that day and lord let us live faithfully in light of that day in your name we pray amen thanks so much for joining us see you tomorrow